I deconstructed around around 2016. I was struggling in 2016. By 2017, I was out. I was just, I'm done. I said, I, I'm throwing off this whole God thing. What is the meaning of anything? And because I believe that, or I wanted to believe that, it also gave me license to make bad decisions. I've been wanting to smoke weed for a while since I've been saved and I ain't really done it, but I used to. I've been wanting to be drunk and pop pills. Forget this praying, where's the Xanax? I'm taking the opiates. Places I, I shouldn't be, I'm going. I did it, I'm justified, cause nothing matters. Long story short, God is starting to show up in my life and he has just shown me some miraculous things. So now I'm faced with the reality that God is real. It's Jesus and it's God. I, I, the story is simple, I'll tell you the story. This is what happened. There are some conversations that we feel we're not allowed to have. Most Christians can't be seen to have moments when they lose control or even struggle. In these moments, you need someone to go into the deep end with you. Nuance is something you can only find if you're willing to go deeper. And those who are willing are often misunderstood by those who aren't. This is The Deep End with LaCrae. I've been trying not to Okay. Yeah. Let's see what we got. I'm out to take the Bible, create disciples who make disciples, disciples. What's going on, y'all? This is LaCrae. I'm here to tell you a little bit about the new project I have called After the Music Stops. So first of all, I got to tell you, this is in Memphis at a block party. I was living in one of the most roughest communities in Memphis. And at that point in time, you just had to be aggressive and let them know like, yeah, I really believe in what I'm saying. And so I'm, yeah, I'm out here. It's guns, it's violence, it's chaos, but I believe in what I'm saying. That's why I'm on this block. You, you better be about what you about, you know? Yeah. My second album. Especially the title track. And, and, and listen, it's almost like prophetic. After the music stops, what's next? Not saying I'll never do music again, but saying this aspect of it, when it stops, what happens? After the show, after the set, after the music stops, what's next? Will there be fellowship, prayer, disciples? Will you read your Bibles? I mean, will there be fellowship, prayer? This, it's basics. You know, I think a lot of us, because I'm somebody who deconstructed and went through deconstruction and dealt with being de-churched and not trusting the church. And these like things can be triggering prayer, disciples, Bible. It's like, oh, uh, uh, trigger, 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 trigger. It's fundamentalism. It's, it's evangelicalism. I hate it. But guess what, man? These are ancient, ancient spiritual practices that are beneficial. They may have been co-opted by people and structures that you have a distaste for, but that's because they were really beneficial and good things. Fellowship is great. Hanging out with like-minded people who can help you become the type of person you want to be is amazing. Prayer is like entering into another dimension with the creator of all creation. Disciples is like investing yourself in other people. Why would you not want to do that? In the Bible, I'm not necessarily talking about the codex that we have in these books and pages. That's a blessing. But I'm talking about literally the word of God that we have put into this very easily transferable form. But however you get it online, through that memorization, I don't care. But it's God's word. Why would you not want to hear from God? So, you know, there's that. And put into practice some of these things that you've heard in the music. Are you actually inspired to go out and be a representative or an ambassador for Christ? The, the heavy guitar, the rock guitar, and the, and the hard-hitting bass drums kicking in. What are you going to do when the music is done? The music is modern-day philosophy. People ride around with their music blasting. See, I, I can go on a soapbox on this. I'm not going. I'm not. I'm not going to get on my total soapbox on music right now. But I'm gonna just tell you, like, I'm from. I'm from both eras. I'm from the era where music was. The word music 
comes from the word, it comes from muse, which means to think. And I come from an era where music was created to make us think, especially hip hop music. It was a reflection of the world that we lived in and the society that we were experiencing. And we had to, we needed a voice and an outlet to express that. And that's what it was. And so I come from that era, but then also come from the era. I'm, 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 I'm part of both. I'm in the middle from when we learned that this was a profitable form of entertainment. Right. And so, oh, shoot, if I talk about all these chaotic things, people pay for that, even if it's not true, even if I never shot anybody, I need to talk about it because people want to hear these horror stories. So I come from both where I understand the necessity of the teaching aspect, but also where it's just been a money game, you know, and that's pretty much it. And what I would say is coming from the era where it was about articulating meaningful things. That means a lot to me. That's why I loved Tupac, because he was sharing what was coming from his heart, whether or not his heart was dark or not. He was sharing what was coming from it. Whereas now, I think a lot of us are just trolling for money. You know, it's like, how can I make something sound good so that I can get paid off of it versus like, I really have something to say. And listen, that's a generational thing. I get it. And I'm not going to sit here and say, hey, do this, not that. I'm just going to say, I realize that's not where music is right now that being a voice of, of, of thought leadership in music is not in trend. So it's cool. Where else can I go? Here. And that's where I'm at. You deconstructed. Mm-hmm. When was that? Um, I deconstructed around, around 2016. Yeah, 2016, I feel like it was like, I, I was I, I was struggling in 2016. By 2017, I was out. I was just I'm done, you know, with this whole particular thing. And a lot of it had to do with um, a lot of backlash from. Uh, it's a long journey. I mean, that's a whole conversation within itself. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, but it's a long journey, and I I love sharing how I got there and how I overcame it. And I understand when people are dechurched or. They're just not interested. Um, I get it. And I'm like, hey, man, um, walk with me, you know, walk with me. Like, here's a step in the journey of like processing what you want to do with faith. Like, here's a step in that in that space where you got somebody who understands, who's not trying to berate you, who's not trying to say, how dare you? You know, who's just saying, listen, I understand. I understand why you wanted to walk away. I understand why you did walk away. And um, I did, too. But. You know, I went on a journey and I found that um, Jesus is worth it. Now, some of the infrastructures that people have built around Jesus should be burned to the ground. But Jesus is absolutely worth it. Is it okay to love Jesus and not go to church? All right. So church as an institution in America is not the, the thing that God was talking about in the scriptures, Right. The, or, or the institution that we see in a lot of the world, right? Church is a community, is a body of people. It is not an institution um, that has oratory and a stage and music and, uh, you know, just the whole like theatrical style of it is not like that's a, that's not an ancient prescription, that's more of a current phenomenon than it is this ancient prescription of this like theatrical oratory style where someone has to be an amazing orator and you, you know, you got this like Broadway-esque type of thing happening on Sunday. I think that's more of, of a consumer, like Western capitalistic economic driven thing. And that's not what God's intention is. God's intention is a body. A group of people who need each other, who rely on each other, who confide in each other, who have different gifts, different abilities, and they use them collectively together to, one, demonstrate that God is amazing to the outside world, to usher in the kingdom as Jesus was doing, to support one another um, because there's different needs. And then there's order within this fellowship, right? Paul lists out like the order that he'd like to see re regarding it. And so that's why there's like elders and so on and so forth. So 
that's what church is supposed to be. We don't really see a lot of that um, in our society. We see people showing up on Sunday to come to a play or a Broadway presentation. They're disconnected from one another. There's not really genuine fellowship. You don't know if you'll see the same people from week to week. There's no real connectivity or genuine relationships. So a lot of churches, institutions have had to create these things called community groups, hoping to facilitate some community. But that even becomes awkward because now you're forcing people to connect and like jive together instead of like an authentic way of living amongst each other. And so I, I, I get it. I get why people struggle with that. And if that's not a problem for you and you can find some resolve and, and that works for you, then praise God. You know, but all of us can't get around needing to have fellowship with other believers uh, to have a group of people that we're so interconnected with that, man, they can challenge us, encourage us, call us up to a higher standard or tell us like, hey, we see this and rally together to 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 live out righteousness in society and serving people like we all. That's what the church is supposed to be. Um, and so I get it, you know, I mean, but when we're in a sense, we're like exiles, you know, when the church was exiled, when when they were scattered amongst the world, they just had to meet at somebody's house and like get together and get through in the text and make it happen. If you go to China, you're not going to see, you know, St. Emmanuel's Baptist church. You're going to see people in an apartment getting together on the low underground and it's still effective. And I know because I've been there and I've done it right. Um, but man. Honor the Lord, you know, honor God. It's not about like, oh man, I, did, I didn't, I haven't been to the institution with a good speaker in a long time. No, but are you connected to people who love Jesus? Are you, right? Like, that's the real question. I think deconstruction is, is like a, it's become like, um, again, words, semantics can get misconstrued, you know, can create arguments. So it's like a lot of times it's about what is meant by the person who's saying it, right? In culture, there's a lot of terms and a lot of words that didn't originate with negativity, right? We made them negative. When I'm saying deconstruction, well, I'll say this, when most millennials say deconstruction, what they're saying is they have decided to tear down their belief system and, uh, Many of them are saying, hey, what does life without Jesus look like? What is morality? What does um, marriage, all these particular things look like if I do away with this faith that I had in Jesus? That's what what is meant. And I'm, I would say I did that as well. Um, there are a lot of pitfalls for me in doing that that I can definitely get into. But what what I believe is is healthy deconstruction is keeping Christ as the foundation. He says he's the cornerstone and then tearing down these walls around him that have been built by our societies and civilizations that have way more culture and tradition than they have truth in them. Right. A lot of people will say, you know, um, little cliche things like cleanliness is next to godliness. When the blessings come, go up, the praises come down. God never said that. The, the culture said that. Right. So get rid of those things. The culture told you that those things are true. Or somebody may say, uh, don't forsake the, you know, the, the Hebrew says, don't forsake the fellowship. And what the society tell, is telling you is you didn't go to church on Sunday. That's not what that means. It means don't isolate yourself from people who love Jesus and love you. It doesn't mean you didn't go to church on Sunday. You don't. That's not what that means. So that's what the culture has told you it meant. And they're wrong. Get rid of it deconstruct all these walls with asbestos and, and mold, tear them down, but stay on the foundation of Jesus and do your best to get back to the original intention of the scriptures, the ancient Near East. You know, Go back, start looking at the Hebrew context of things. I love people like Lois Tverberg. She's a great writer. Um, there's a book by, um, I forget the author's name at the minute, but it's The Lost History of Christianity. There's just tons of work. Vincent Bantu, um, uh, um, a multitude of peoples. Like there's different people who can give you an alternative 
alternative perspective of a of a more of the ancient Near East perspective and less of this like Western exceptional like American America Jesus that we've built. We got to get rid of that. That's not the intention. I said this before. You know what it's like? It's like, um, you know, my, oh my God, my mother-in-law, she makes the most amazing collard greens you've ever tasted. They're delicious. The reason why they're delicious is because she sticks to the recipe that was handed down for generations to her. Now, if you take her recipe and you decide to add raisins, it's no longer the recipe that was handed down for generations. It is actually now an atrocity and should be uh, kicked out of every home it's ever been brought into. There should be no raisins in these immaculate collard greens. But that's what we've done with this faith. We have a faith that's been handed down from the ancient Near East for generations. And then we started instituting all these random things in it that were never meant to be. You got Constantine dabbling in it. You got, you know, the Americans, the all these different people d throwing seasonings and spices in it that were never supposed to be there and then handing over to you like, say, here's Christianity. Well, when I take a bite, that is gross. I don't want it. I don't want it. And I don't blame anybody else for not wanting it. So deconstruction is getting rid of all those excess ingredients and getting back down to the original recipe that was handed down 2,000 years ago. That tastes good. Deconstruction is not a bad thing as long as you're not getting rid of Jesus, right? It's not a bad thing. It's getting rid of perceptions and perspectives that have been given to us culturally and, and saying, I, these are not necessary. Now, they may be good, right? But they're, but they're not absolutes. I love traditions. I hate traditionalism. We got traditions. Tradition at Christmas time, the adults don't get gifts. We do, uh, what do you call it? A gift exchange thing, right? That's what we do. So no one feels pressure. No pressure. Oh, I got to spend all this money and da, da, da. We don't do that. We do gifts for the kids, gift exchange for the adults. That's a tradition. Traditionalism is when it's like, hey, it's a law that you may never purchase a gift for an adult. That must never happen. If so, you have violated Christmas. It's not a law. It's not. So, you know, that's what we tend to do is we create traditionalism in society that says, hey, you didn't do this. It's not good anymore. No, nah, I don't like it. He's not a good speaker. Some of the best leaders in Christian history weren't good speakers. But all you're looking for is an amazing orator. I can give you a million people who can speak well. That doesn't mean they love Jesus. They can get up there and give you sound bites for days. You're probably not going to learn your Bible. But... That's what the tradition calls for. So that's what we're doing. The, the thing about traditions and the thing about rules is that they're really, when God institutes them, they're good for us, right? Like the problem for a lot of us is we're trying to get as close to disobedience as we can without disobeying, right? That's, that's the problem most of us. How close can I get to disobedience without actually disobeying? Instead of like, saying how far away from it can I get? Because I know joy comes from following God. And I don't wanna put myself in a position where I'm not following him, so why would I try to get close to it? It's as if, it's like, you know, I wanna get as close to a heart attack as I can without getting one. Why would you do that? I, I wanna eat as much bad food as I possibly can without getting sick. Why, why? Why put yourself in that position? Like, He's made provision for you to not have to get there and have a healthy life. And so instead of trying to put yourself in a place where you're teetering on disobedience, like, man, he's giving you these institutes and these these like traditions and these helpful things to help remind you how beautiful truth is, how good his law is. And if you're close to it, you'll be like, oh, it is good. The law is good. It is a light to my feet. It is a joy to my soul. But if you're not close enough to it, you're not going to appreciate it, right? You're not going to see the value in it because you're spending, if, if, if you spend, I, I hate the term distance makes the heart grow fonder because it's not really true. Distance does not make the heart grow fonder. The, the longer I'm away from my wife, the more beautiful other women look, just being honest, right? And I tell her that. I say, babe, I'm coming home because the chicken out here is starting to look like steak. The bologna out here is starting to look like filet mignon. And the reality is, 
when I'm closer to her, when I'm spending time with her, the less I'm even thinking about anybody else because I'm appreciating her and her goodness and her beauty. It's the same with God. The closer we are to him and his word and his laws and his truth, the less we're concerned with the other things that we think are going to bring us happiness. It's the 80-20 principle, man. You, you're, you're missing that 20% and you're out hunting for it because you just keep seeing the 20% you don't have at home all the time. And you're forgetting about the 80% that you do have. And then you get that 20% thing over there and it doesn't even add up. You're like, oh my God, you're, you're not at all what I really wanted, right? It's like, man, that cheeseburger is not near as good as that home-cooked meal that I had. But when I'm out here, it's everything. Get back home. Eat that home-cooked meal and be like, okay, you right. It's got to be the right home-cooked meal, but you get what I'm saying. A lot of us go through the rituals. We do all the right things. And some of us were promised results that we didn't see, right? We, 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 were, we were let down in some shape, form, or capacity. And my story, my story is, is this. I grew up in a dysfunctional house. I grew up um, with a father who wasn't present. I grew up with a lot of abuse, a lot of just chaos in my family. So I longed for a healthy whole family. That's something I desired. When I became a Christian, I became a Christian because I was embraced by this group of young believers and it felt family oriented. It felt like something I'd never experienced. So I ended up meeting Jesus. I'm now in, in this family. And little by little, this family moved toward conservative evangelicalism and um, and and I and I embraced it. I love the 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 weightiness of the thinking and the you know, I'm a thinker. So I liked, oh, wow, there's a process for this. I love all of these particular things. But then I began to realize that as much as they thought about scripture, there was not a lot of thinking about social and cultural realities, right? Partially lack of exposure to diverse communities and diverse cultures. And so some of these things that, that were important in that circle were like, you couldn't do anything with tangibly in the real world, right? And so now I'm, I'm living in one of the, 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 the most crime-filled environments amongst impoverished people and and nobody here needs systematic theology, right? That's not what they're looking for. So I needed it to be relevant for this particular time. Now I'm spending time in this community and I'm being heartbroken by these realities. A kid like Trayvon Martin gets killed and I'm thinking everyone is having the same experience I'm having, right? We all know our Bible. We all know what Amos says about injustice. And we all know that the Bible says, you know, mourn with those who mourn. And I said, hey, this kid died and this is a kid like all the other kids that I'm mentoring. I feel bad about it. And I put that on social media. Well, the Christians that loved me every time I said go on mission trips or every time I said uh, I broke something down in the Greek or Hebrew were now upset at me for talking about loving Trayvon Martin. And I didn't understand it. And I said, this doesn't make sense to me. So I thought maybe I should say it a different way, said it a different way, was bombasted and called a fool for that. Well, now I'm jaded. Okay, I'm jaded. And I don't understand why my family is talking to me crazy. I thought you loved me and you love people like me. And I'm telling you, this is, this is going on in society. So from that point, I don't know what to think. You know, I'm I, I'm the golden child. I've always been accepted and loved. And now I'm being rejected by the people that I respected and looked up to. And after a while, the words on the scriptures just became black ink on white pages because I'm like, I don't even know how to to see this anymore. I don't you preaching Romans to me is weird because I, I don't you don't care. And it's just kept happening. More injustices happen in society, less care, less concern. Um you know, an advocation of, you know, political candidates who were equal. I mean, I didn't see one godly one on the stand. Right. But there are different identities or ideals of what you're supposed to care about as a Christian in your political candidate. And um, and I thought that was weird because you should care about babies in the womb and the poor. They both matter. Um, God does. You should care about babies who are unborn and kids getting shot in the street. Both of them can die. So I don't get it. Why are we choosing sides here? Um, so 
end of the day, I was betrayed and, I, you know, I won't say betrayed. I'll just say end of the day, I faced a lot of backlash, a lot of hate, um, an unsurmountable amount of it that just made me really frustrated and angry. And I thought, man, if these people don't understand this, what do they understand? Maybe everything they taught me is wrong. And I couldn't find voices that could value biblical scholarship and cultural societal change and marry them together. And that was the beginning of my downfall as far as trusting in God. And so I just went on that trajectory of throwing it all off. And it was a dark season, man. A lot of my faith was attached to like the Christian culture, you know, the, the conservative evangelical circles. And, and I got some conservative evangelical brothers and sisters. I love you. I'm not saying like you're the enemy. I think there's value in in what they bring. I think there's value in my charismatic Pentecostal brothers. I think there's value in my conservative brother. I think there's value in my liberal brothers and sisters. Like, and people hate that. It's like, well, pick a side. No, there's literally value in all these perspectives. Now, some of them are wrong, dead wrong on a lot of things, but some of them are right. And you gotta acknowledge that. You just gotta acknowledge it. So I was buying into um, the the cultural norms or the cultural views that they had and not so much the ancient scriptural views. And, um, and I couldn't find those views articulated by anybody except for white men. If you started Googling ancient near Eastern biblical truth, it's nine times out of 10 going to be a white male scholar giving you insight on this thing. That's not a crime, but when you're, traumatized and struggling because you feel like educated white men are blasting you and, call, and and telling you you're 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 a heretic that's not the voice you really want to hear from so i found it very difficult to find an alternative voice and i thought oh my god colonization worked <laughs> something i can't get out of this bubble what do i do uh, so it made it very hard for me to hear from, um, and I had to realize I live in a Western world, and so those are going to be the the leading voices a lot of times. But it made it hard for me to 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 listen, um, and I struggled, you know, for a long time. It took it took me on a on a long journey. A lot of us have been fooled into thinking if we don't choose the red pill or the blue pill, there's no other pills, and that's a lie, um, because. Neither one of those pills are absolute. Neither one of those ways are the way. Um, the best way I can articulate it for you is you have to understand that you're in a race. You know, there's a story like Ben-Hur. Ben-Hur was this ancient Jewish guy who rode these horses because he was captured by Rome as a prisoner. Now him participating in these chariot races was actually like sinful to the Jews. It was like, oh my gosh, he is a sellout. He shouldn't be doing these things. The Romans were like, let him race because we created this thing and there's no possible way this Jew's gonna beat us at our own game. Well, Ben-Hur actually goes on to win these chariot games. And what they found was that the Jews who were once upon a time against participating in this were actually like, yeah, our guy won. Our guy won. And they were cheering and they were excited. And someone went to the Roman emperor and said, hey, the Jews beat us at our race. What do we do? And the Roman emperor said, I don't care if they beat us at our race as long as they're participating. That is exactly how Satan wants us to function. I don't care how they vote as long as they believe in the the system and not the kingdom. Empires crumble all the time. The kingdom is forever. Buy into the empire. I don't care. Buy into whatever empire you want to. None of them are the kingdom. And so a lot of you have bought into this idea, I got to choose this empire or that empire. No, you don't. You just got to choose the kingdom. Now, some empires will co-opt kingdom agendas, you know, and highlight them. But guess what? They're going to crumble. You could have bought into Rome all you wanted to. You could have been the most Roman of Romans. That nation crumbled. You could have been the Egyptian of all Egyptians. That reign crumbled. The empires will crumble. The Roman Empire is no more. I mean, Rome still exists, but the empire, no, it's not here. Right? So the kingdom is still here, though. 
So you don't have to choose an empire. You can choose the kingdom and there's a kingdom way. God doesn't choose sides. He takes over, right? He doesn't take sides. He takes over. That's, that's the reality of it. So you just, you always want to align yourself with the kingdom. What, what, where's Jesus at? Jesus could have upended Rome. He could have been like, hey, I'm going to be the king now. And Rome, you're done. I'm, let's get rid of this empire. Let's crumble it to the ground. No, it didn't work that way. He, he did it a different way. And that's the way we're going to do it. It's a different way. It's a way of love. It's a way of peace. Paul goes to Athens. He gets the preaching on Mars Hill. He gives an amazing speech. 200 years, nothing changes there. But we're still talking about it today. So it did have some impact. And that's the reality. You may not see it today. You're going to choose the third way, the kingdom way. And for the next 20 years, you're going to feel like no one is paying attention. But it's, it's the way. Trust and believe that. That's the, the funny thing about it is, man, we hate working and nuance. We hate digging and stretching to get the desired result. Man, the kingdom of God is like a jewel. It's worth mining for. You're going to have to mine. You know, it's not just going to be like, it's simple. Here you go. Jesus spoke in parables. If he wanted everybody to get it, he would have just said, hey, this is it. Right. He wanted you to dig. He wanted you to use your mind. He wanted you to process like he gave you a mind for a reason. Right. And that's one of the beauties of ancient Jewish culture is that they function by asking a lot of questions back and forth and back and forth. It was more about questions and digging and mining, mining the scriptures because they're written so amazing. This is it's not a comic book, y'all. It's one of the most brilliant pieces of literature you'll ever find. It's not just a storybook that you can just pick up and like, OK, I read it. It's done. No way. There's jewels and gems and and literary devices you've never even heard of stuff like chiasms and all types of things you don't even like you don't understand. The ancient Jews were brilliant in the way that they designed this. And so you're going to have to dig in order to see that ancient Near Eastern perspective and wade through your own lenses. That's the hardest thing is we all have a lens we're coming to to, to the to the game with. We all have a perspective we see things through, and it's going to take some work to unsee the things that we, this, this presupposition that we have when we approach God. It's going to take work, right? It's not, it's not, but, but that's, that's how life is, right? You, you wake up every day and you study and you figure out how to make your TikToks go viral. You can put that same effort and energy into understanding the, the ancient truth of the scripture. You're figuring out how to make your business thrive and you got gurus and consultants and counselors. You're spending hours on YouTube. I guarantee you, if you add up all of the words you've read on social media, it's probably like a 2000 page book. You could have read books on books on books, but you're reading sound bites on sound bites on sound bites. And so if you put the work in, you'll unpack some jewels and gems. You know, my mom used to always say readers are leaders. You gotta have to read. Let the book read to you, you know, get you an audio book. I learned tons. Listen to a podcast, not a soundbite. You're probably not going to get a lot of information in 30 seconds from a clip on social media. Maybe if you put in the whole hour, 35, 40 minutes, you might get something of use to you. <laughs> Today, I feel like I got a master class on it all. You know what I mean? Like I've I've been on a a tour of all the positions and perspectives. I have been bombasted by both liberals and conservatives. I've been canceled multiple times. I have understood politics more than I wanted to. I have understood both angles of the community and the police. I think I really have done the due diligence to understand, to have perspective. And the reason why is because I face so much public disdain, right? I'm trying to process in real time and I, I'm forced to because everything I say or do gets scrutinized and challenged. So the average person can have a perspective or an opinion and no one will ever challenge it, right? They're, they don't have to wrestle. I'm forced to wrestle with it because I say something and half a million people say, you're crazy. And I'm like, wow, half a million people have a different perspective. What the heck is their perspective? And I have to be willing to hear their perspective and their side of the story to understand. So in this season of my life, man, 
I I'm firm on where I stand, but I'm also firm to understand that, hey, my views and values um, on particular things can change. Right. Why? Because I'm a lifelong learner. Now, I'm always going to keep God at the center, but I'm always going to be a learner. I'm going to be a learner until the day that I die. I'm never going to stop learning. And so as I'm learning, I am, you know, my perspective is broadening. So, yes, I have firm perspectives because I've seen things and experienced things. And I and I think a lot of people don't do the work. Simply put, most folks don't do the work to even have a respectable opinion about half the things they talk about. Most folks just look at sound bites on social media and form uninformed opinions. Most of them are not reading books, are not uh, listening to experts, are not doing the due diligence to even have a well-informed opinion. They're just going along to get along. But you wouldn't do that in other areas of life, right? You wouldn't do that um, with your health. If somebody said, oh, you got this disease, you wouldn't just say, well, whatever they say on social media about it is what I'm going to believe. No, you wouldn't. You do some research. You're going to be on Google. You're going to be probably thinking you're going to die because you spend so much time reading all the different uh, results of whatever it is that you have. Right. That's what that's all I'm saying. It's not imperative. It's not like crucial. And it's got to be crucial to us because this is where life is. This is where hope lies. This is where meaning and purpose exists. If God is not the center of your everything, then, man, what are you really living for? Right. Everything starts there and spreads itself outward. So that's where my headspace is right now. It's like, man, I just want to keep God at the center. I want to love people. I want to inform people and I want my insights and perspectives to be informed by God. And I'm open to different vantage points. You know, you, you don't have to be, uh, you don't have to be hostile. I mean, you can be hostile if that's what you want to be, but that just shows me that, you know, you're more interested in winning wars and winning fights and not winning people, not winning relationships. You know, I tell my wife that all the time, whenever we're, we're having a dispute, I want to make sure she understands, Hey, I just want you to know I'm for you. So my goal in this is harmony and peace, not to win. I don't want to win. I want harmony and peace. So we've got to understand each other. And that's where I'm at in this in this world. If you're curious and you have questions, I'm down. If you're critical and all you want to do is critique, find somewhere else to go. This isn't the spot for you. I have three great friends and I think we're great friends because we disagree. (laughs) Right. We we disagree. And that sharpens us. That's how you sharpen something is you sharpen it by rubbing against it. Iron sharpens iron by rubbing by friction. So it's not unnecessary friction. It's just it's friction because I'm forced to hear different vantage points or different perspectives. Right. Um, So, you know, I love my guy, A.T. My guy, A.T., is um, we have different backgrounds. Okay, Um, he's coming from a very Pentecostal um, faith and healing background. I'm coming from a conservative one and we have to meet in the middle on a lot of things and understand each other's perspectives. And so he's like, hey man, I was at this camp one time and I saw this kid's leg grow and it was healed right there on the spot. And I'm like, I've never seen that, but I trust you. I believe that you're a value, uh, 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 you're not somebody who's just a charlatan out here just trying to, you know, tell people tales for the sake of nothing. So guess what? I've, I've got to adjust to hear what my brother's saying. He's also got to adjust to say, hey, you know, um, I just want to pray and hear from God. And it's like God speaks through the Bible, too. You're right. I need to read the Bible. Right. This is we got to come to these places of mutual understanding. Uh, We disagree on a lot of things. He's more of a zealous person. He's like, man, let's burn the whole system down. It's terrible. You know, I don't you know, corporate America. We try to do this. We try to do. We try to start a film production company together. Right. And I've been dealing with the snakes in Hollywood for years. I know they're snakes and I know snakes bite. That's just how it goes. He is zealous. He's like that snake is a that person is a snake and he bites. We need to burn the whole system down. I was like, well, you, you, there'll be no one left. <laughs> if, you, if you get rid of all the snakes, there's no one left. And so we, 
you know, he'll say you're a Herodian and Herodians were the people who lived amongst the time of Herod who were just kind of like trying to figure out a way to navigate the political system in order to have influence. And he'd be a zealot. He's like, man, I'm just coming in there to kill uh, Herod and kill the Romans. And then we're going to start over from fresh, you know, so we clash on that because I'm looking for ways to garner influence and to you know, use the broken system to do the things that God has called me to do. He's saying, I'm coming in here and letting them know they're wrong and they need to change their methods. Guess what? We're both right. We're both right. And there's been times where we've had to acknowledge that his way was the better way in this particular circumstance. And he's had to acknowledge, hey, your way was the better way in this particular circumstance. And you're going to you need friends like that. If you don't have friends that you can clash with and disagree with, you don't have any friends. If every one of your friends agrees with everything you do, those are not your friends. You need to get new ones. If you don't have friends who say, wait a minute, pause, let's think about that. Is that what you're really going to wear? Do you think those shoes go with this? If you don't have those people in your life, you don't have any friends because friends are willing to tell you the truth. Right. Friends are willing to wrestle with you. And the reason why they wrestle with you and you allow it is because, you know, they're not going anywhere. Right. That's where intimacy and trust is, is I know you can say this to me and you still love me. I know I can say this to you and you're not going anywhere and I'm not going anywhere. Right. That's a friend. A friend is someone who who says, hey, um, you know, you you. It's clear you're cheating on, on, on your significant other, and I don't want to be an accomplice. Matter of fact, not only do I not want to be an accomplice, I'm going to tell them if you don't. That's a friend, right? A friend is not somebody who hides all those secrets. I, I know I know all the dead bodies are. No. A friend is somebody who's telling you, hey, man, you don't need to bury anything else. You need to cut it out. That's a friend. So I think we got it misconstrued where we're like, hey, friends are people who, you know, do dirt with me and keep all my secrets and don't. Yeah, they'll keep secrets, the secrets that you share with them in order to, to help you get healing, but not secrets that you share so you can continue with your uh, uh, debauchery and your ignorance. That's not a friend. Right now, you do need some friends who are who, you know, are going to support you even when you're ugly. You are you are a fool. You are the drunk friend at the party who is hitting on somebody's wife that you shouldn't be hitting on. You are the drunk friend at the party who threw up on the floor and it's a disaster and you're hanging in the toilet and they're letting you spend the night at their house and giving you chicken noodle soup in the morning and telling you you did embarrass yourself, but it's going to be okay. You do need them too, right? That's a friend too. You don't need the friend who's always just going to chastise you and tell you you're the worst thing in the world. You need friends who are going to support you and encourage you and tell you, man, I'm proud of you. And they're going to celebrate you. That's the thing. I don't, I don't naturally celebrate because I'm always trying to win the next thing. So I don't take a minute to celebrate things. But I got some friends who, are, who challenge me to celebrate. And they'll, celebrate, they'll say, hey, we're going to stop and we're going to celebrate. You finished a book. Yeah, but I wrote two other books and this book's not going to do as well as the last one. You finished a book that is celebratory. We're going to celebrate what God did in your life. You need those people. You know, you got to you got to raise. But it but it was only like a a a little bit, not a lot. We're going to celebrate cuz you worked hard and we're going to celebrate that. You started a company, but it hasn't done well yet. I don't know if it's even going to. We're going to celebrate you taking a leap of faith. And we're excited for you and we support you. Let's go. You need all of that. The thing about my deconstruction is, and, and if you're human, this is probably most of us. There is going to be some, some aspect of desire or fleshly desire or worldliness that you are going to feel like you can justify because you've let go of God, right? Oftentimes there's something that we want so badly that at the opportunity to let go of God, we'll take advantage of this thing, right? Maybe you are in a relationship you shouldn't be in, or you want to be in a relationship you shouldn't be in. And letting go of God is now in some way giving you a license to do that particular thing. That's the snare of the enemy, 
right? And that's the snare that I found myself in as well. I deconstructed. I said, I'm throwing off this whole God thing. And what that said to me was, what is the meaning of anything? Right. If there's no God, is there meaning? Is there purpose? If I don't have God, I don't have purpose, because if there's no God, I'm a cosmic accident. I'm just a random occurrence of atoms and molecules. Nothing I do really matters. And because I believe that or I wanted to believe that it also gave me license to make bad decisions because nothing I do matters. So I've been wanting to smoke weed for a while since I've been saved and I ain't really done it, but I used to. It doesn't matter. Now I'm getting high every day. I've been wanting to be drunk and pop pills. Well, they make me feel better. Forget this praying. Where's the Xanax? I did it. Right. I've been wanting to go to all these crazy parties and events and, you know, places I, I shouldn't be. Who cares? Who cares? I'm going. And so now I find myself in places, in circumstances, uh, taking substances that I was like, yes, I'm justified because nothing matters. You know what I mean? Um, And in order to do that, you have to isolate yourself from the people who are saying you shouldn't be doing this. Like, what are you doing? Right. You have to isolate. And for me, I told my friends, I told a couple of them, I said, hey, I don't really believe in this God thing anymore. They were like, oh, it's a phase. You're going through a phase. But we were all equally traumatized by a lot of the stuff that was going on in society. So we all kind of understood like we're grieving kind of collectively. But, you know. I wasn't going to tell them that I was behind the scenes taking drugs. I also wasn't going to tell them that I had pre-gamed before we went to the party or the bar, right? That I, I showed up drunk. You just didn't know it because I hid it well. I wasn't going to tell them that, right? I wasn't going to tell them that I was going to every after party, you know, after all these events. I wasn't going to tell them that. So um, I wasn't going to tell them that I was, you know, going off the deep end in these particular areas because then they would say something and I didn't want that. Right. You know, we do have a, a, um, a opioid crisis and, um, you know, I was a victim of a, I don't know if you want to call it a victim, but I mean, you know, Satan had a field day with me because I, found one of those particular doctors who was a pill pusher. It was a pill farm. I didn't know this what I had walked into, but he was a, it was a pill farm. And he began to tell me, man, I should take these particular opioid opiates to help with anxiety and depression, which I was battling at that particular time. And man, he was, he talked about it. So can it was almost scary. It was almost like, he was like, man, just pop a couple of these. He said, pop a couple of bars. He didn't say I prescribe Xanax for, he said, pop a couple of bars. The place has been shut down, of course, but but I mean, I, he doubled my prescription and it got to the point where I was taking these on such a regular basis just to deal with regular life and to create that. You know, it's, it, to this day, I I struggle with the album, listening to the album I made, which was all things work together because there was so that was a time period. So some of that album was made with me just functioning on opiates. Long story short, I'm taking the opiates And um, God is starting to show up in my life. God is starting to teach me some lessons because I've traveled to Egypt and I and he has just shown me some miraculous things. So now I'm faced with the reality that God is real. It's Jesus and it's God. The story is simple. I'll tell you the story. This is what happened. I go to Egypt. I'm not looking for God. I'm looking to get away. I'm in Egypt. An archaeologist is telling me about a particular Pharaoh says, this Pharaoh is a failure in our society because he let a lot of slaves get away. I said, oh, that's like the story of Moses and the Pharaoh in the Bible. The archaeologist says, I am not familiar with the Bible. I've never read it. I don't know the stories. I said, you're joking. I do not know the stories. Is this a story from the Bible? I said, shut up. A Pharaoh let a bunch of slaves go, and this is a thing, 
and you've never heard the, and I said, okay, God, I see you. Then I'm on a trip. I'm sitting on the Nile River. I'm looking at the Nile. I'm like, this is a real thing. It's really in the Bible. It's really here. They're talking about the pyramids. People talking about Moses like he was a real person. I'm like, oh my God, this stuff is real. Okay, I got to acknowledge at the very least, this stuff is real. That took me to a place where I had to acknowledge God was real. And me and him began to talk and journey. I realized I need to get rid of the pills so I can have some clarity of mind. I flushed them down the toilet. I don't recommend that if you're on a prescription drug. I began to have a series of anxiety attacks and withdrawals. Jacked me up pretty badly. Uh, I was in a very dark space. And um, it created some chaos that I could only turn to God for. I found myself in a clinical depression, found myself in acute anxiety, curled up in a ball, thought I was just gonna die, wanted to die, and God slowly began to pull me out. It was at that particular point in time, I went to my friends, I went to my wife, I just started laying it all out. Confession brings healing, y'all. Confession brings healing. I started saying, hey, this is what I've been dealing with, this is what I've been doing, this is where I've been, this is, I let it all out. And when it's all out, Satan can't use it against you anymore. If it's a secret, it's a tool to be used against you. If it's open and out there, he can't use it against you. Because now you're getting healing from it. Now it's like, oh yeah, I did that. I did this. It's like Eminem and 8 Mile. He cut his own legs off. He said, what you gonna say to me? Oh, I'm a white boy. Yeah, yeah. You have nothing to use against me. I already told him myself. What are you gonna do, Satan? The word Satan means adversary or accuser. That's what he does. He accuses you. He wants you to feel terrible about everything you've done. The accusations weren't working because I... My friends and God already knew everything and they were encouraging me. My wife, everyone was encouraging me saying, we're gonna walk with you. We're gonna walk through this healing process with you. And that's the beginning of my journey of restoration. Darkest place I could ever be. And now I wouldn't trade it for the world. Do I still have issues and realities from that? Yes, I do. But guess what? I'll take those because I wouldn't be healthy today. Right? I wouldn't be healed today. I probably wouldn't be successful had I not been so traumatized as a child. So would I trade the success for a healthy upbringing? Probably. And if I hadn't been so successful, I probably wouldn't have the trauma that I had to take me through the healing process I went through. So at the same time, I'm healthy and healed and have endured so much. Man, it's like, psh. I don't know if I give away my limp to be an unhealthy version, but an unhealed, but healthy, mentally, emotional, whatever you want to call it. Like there's aspects of my mental state that are, that will never be the same because of the trauma I put on my brain, but I would not be as mature as, you know, strong in certain aspects of my life and my character. I wouldn't be as free as I am had I not endured that. So would I give up my limp? It's like saying someone who, who lost a limb, but because of the rehabilitation that they've gone through, it's made them so much stronger in so many other areas. Would they trade that limb back but be weak in all those areas? I don't know. I wouldn't. On my worst day, sometimes I'm like, yes, I would. But in reality, I love who I am today. Wouldn't trade it.